Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? It's a big celebration day today. Meteorological spring begins. So <laughs> one step closer to the real deal. You know what I mean? So, uh, hey, I'm glad you're all here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, if you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in the midst of a study right now called uh, Going Viral, and uh, it's a study of this first century document that basically records um, how the early Christian church and the good news of of God's love and grace went, as we would say today, went viral, uh, spreading quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to uh, the farthest reaches of the known world. And we started off last week with a brief overview of the book, and if you missed it, I encourage you to go online and listen because we, there was some really important information and details that we went over that helped set the stage for the entire study. But if you're here, hopefully you recall, uh, we left off with Luke, the author, uh, reporting on how after, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers over, over a period of 40 days, at the end of which he instructs them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the gift that that God the Father had promised, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 1, verse 6, Luke continues his account, and he writes this. He says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their, view, uh, their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. We're going to talk a little bit about this event, but first let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, another day. Uh, thank you for... Um, every moment that we have. It's, it's, a, it's a measure of your goodness and grace. And as we join here together in the few moments that we have uh, ahead of us, I pray that you would, you would speak to us and teach us about what is right and true and good. And may we be open to the work of your spirit um, in and through your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that you give us the ability to, to listen and then to follow after you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm guessing uh, that any adult here this morning, uh, parent or otherwise, who's ever taken children on a car trip requiring a fair amount of driving will recognize this question. Are we there yet? Does that sound familiar to anybody? When I was a kid, my family only did driving trips. Uh, Dad was a truck driver, and so getting into a vehicle and going 8, 10, 12, 14 hours somewhere nonstop to him was no big deal. To me, it was a huge deal. Uh, You know, he'd get us up at 3 in the morning. They'd cram us in the station wagon. Before we were out of town, I'd be like, are we there yet? How long is this going to take? You know, when are we going to get there? So some variation of that question. Uh, And our kids did the same thing, the exact same thing. At least now, kids can sit in the back with a video, keep them quiet for a while, right? Uh, I didn't have that luxury when I was a parent. Certainly, my parents didn't have that luxury. Uh, My brother and I occupied our time in the car by playing a game called Drive Mom and Dad Completely Out of Their Minds. Uh, 
Uh, we got quite good at it, actually. It involved yelling at each other, punching each other, pinching each other, spitting at each other, tattling on each other. And we didn't use seatbelts back then, so keeping us separated was virtually impossible, you know what I mean? And so a big part of the game became what we called the duck and weave because mom and dad would be like trying to grab us and gain control of the back seat, and we'd be ducking and weaving and uh, trying to avoid any contact that might uh, accidentally happen. And... Um, uh, it, it's funny because I was thinking about it this weekend. I remember one tri- trip in particular. We just kept at it, man, my brother and I. We just kept at it. We, 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 you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Finally, my parents just like, f- they flipped out. They're like, one more time, ask one more time, and we're going to pull over and leave you. <laughs> so what did I do? Well, uh, you know, you guys know me. I, you know, I, I did what any immature, obnoxious kid would do. I tendered the question. Are we there yet? And my dad pulls over, I mean like a dart, pulls over to the side of the road, opens the door, made me get out, and starts driving away. And, and I'm standing there, and I am freaking out. I called his bluff. I was wrong, and, and now they're leaving me, and I was freaking out. Fortunately, he didn't go that far and came, came back, which I give him a lot of credit for. Uh, I'm not sure I would have come back to get me, but I'll never forget the experience, you know. And I tell you what, I kept my mouth shut the rest of that trip. Now, disclaimer here, I'm not promoting that strategy for anyone. Uh, I have deep uh, wounds over that. Uh, um, my therapist said I'm almost over them. Um, but and I, and I realize this is kind of weird, but right, wrong, or in between, that's the image that came to mind when I started reading this section of the text. Because Luke says Jesus had been talking to the disciples about a whole lot of things, including things of the kingdom of God. And so when he tells them to stay in Jerusalem and wait... That wasn't good enough for them. They, they weren't interested at this point in waiting for anything. They wanted to know, when will the kingdom come? When will the kingdom be restored? I.e., are we there yet, Jesus? You know, are you going to make it happen now? If not, when? And here's the deal. I don't think the disciples were trying to be obnoxious. I just think they were genuinely confused on what was going on. I mean, consider it. Je- Jesus had been publicly crucified just a few weeks earlier. Uh, pronounced dead, buried, and now suddenly here he is alive, showing up all over the place over a 40-day period of time, talking to a whole bunch of people about the kingdom of God, and so justifiably no one seemed exactly sure what was happening. And it's important we understand that in Israel at the time, there was a lot of tension in the air. There was a lot of cultural angst among uh, people in the nation because basically they were tired of, of, of Roman occupancy. They were tired of Roman oppression. Uh, they were ready for that to be done, and they were. Everyone was anxiously awaiting the promised Messiah of God, who they believed would 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 come and lead a revolution to overthrow Caesar's empire and establish God's kingdom on earth. And the disciples believed that. You know, they thought Messiah would show up, turn everything around, he'd rescue and free his people, he'd take out the Romans, and he'd take over the world. And at this point, more than ever, man, they believed Jesus was the guy. He was the divine Messiah, no question about it, resurrected from the dead. He's the one who's going to inaugurate this new earthly kingdom. And so they were anxious for it to begin. But see, they were looking at things strictly from a socio-political perspective. Jesus' revolution was first and foremost a spiritual one. His kingdom would come. The empire would be changed, the world would be transformed, but not by political prowess or military power, but through the the truth of the gospel of grace and by the power of God's spirit at work in the world. Notice, notice Jesus says, he says, it's not for you guys to know all the times, the dates, the details of what God the Father is doing. You don't need to worry about that. He says, all you need to know is this, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But even this was confusing. Uh, this was confusing, not because the guys hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit before. I mean, uh, they had. A number of times Jesus told them how the Father was going to send his Spirit to comfort them, to lead them, to teach them, um, to remind them of everything that Jesus taught them. Uh, and in fact, at one point, Jesus explained that the world can't accept the spirit because they can neither see him or know him. But Jesus said, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And so the disciples knew about the Holy Spirit and the promise of his coming. Yet still there was confusion uh, about what all of this meant. And they're standing there thinking to themselves, OK, we you know, we've heard about the spirit, the leading, the, the teaching, the helping. But power, you know, power. What's the power for power for what? What do we do? And we know that's what they were thinking because Jesus anticipates the question, right? He says, he says, you'll receive power and here what, here's what you're, here's what you will do. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In other words, your local neighborhood and in all of Judea and Samaria. In other words, the, the region just beyond your neighborhood among people you don't necessarily know, people who are maybe different, people maybe you don't even like. And then to the ends of the earth, as far away as you guys could possibly imagine. And notice Jesus doesn't say you'll receive power to build cathedrals or establish programs or develop a clever marketing scheme to boost church attendance. No, he says you'll receive power to be my witnesses. And the Greek term that's used here that we translate witness is the term uh, martyrus or mortus. We get our word um, uh, martyr from this. You know, it, it was a term that referred to someone who's willing to give his or her life for what they've seen, what they've heard, and what they know to be true. So let's clarify. Jesus wasn't merely telling his followers, hey, I want you to go talk about me, which is how we in the church often uh, tend to define the, 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 the term witness, which is a very narrow definition. I mean, Jesus' idea was much bigger, much broader than that. He is saying, I'm giving you a life purpose. I don't want you to just talk about me. I, I want you to live for me. I want you to give of yourselves in such a way that the world will know you're my followers. No question about it. They'll know you're my people. You'll love each other in a way that proves it. You'll love your neighbors more than you love yourselves. You'll give, you'll serve, you'll sacrifice them, even for strangers, all in an effort to share about me and the truth of God's grace offered to them. Jesus says, I want you to do that. I want your faith, what you say you believe, supported by how you live every day in your community. And it seems to me that the future of the church especially in our culture, rests in us as Christians understanding this. Because let's be honest, for many in the church today, Christianity simply means coming into an environment, environment like this once a, once a week for an hour, acquiring some inform, uh, in, theological information, maybe performing some obligatory uh, religious rituals, saying the right things, singing the right songs, maybe participating in activities of the church when it's convenient and if it benefits us. And I, but I'm sorry to tell you, if that's what we think Christianity is, then we've we've missed it. We've we've totally missed it because, in a sense, in essence, I mean, what Jesus is doing here with his followers, followers, is he is calling them, he is calling us, not so much to come in but to go out. You know, it's a call to a decisive, eternally significant, culturally engaging, world-impacting way of living in our Jerusalem and our community every day. In short, our God-given purpose is to be living, breathing, loving, authentic witnesses to who we believe in Jesus and what we know to be true, love and grace of God. Now, I tell you, so often I'll come... Uh, 
I'll get in a conversation with Christians who, well, like many other people in our culture, are just really struggling. You know, they feel particularly dissatisfied and unfulfilled in life, and they're just they're wrestling with this kind of the feeling of the mundane, their mundane existence and boredom. And and when I when I when I talk to people about that, I, I'm just really saddened by it, and 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 it's a real shame. And if that's true for any of us in the in the room, perhaps the reason for that experience is that we have yet to grasp the eternal purpose for which God fills our lungs with air every day, to be martyrs, martyrs, witnesses to the love and grace of God in Jesus. Now, you know, I'll be honest, the thought of living up to this God-given purpose is intimidating, at least for me. And I'm thinking Peter, John, and the rest felt the same way. I mean, only a short... Only a short while ago, these, these guys were hiding in a locked room in Jerusalem, scared to death to leave, to venture out. And now Jesus is saying, hey, man, I've got a purpose for you. Go out, give everything you've got, even your lives if necessary, to ensure that the world that I died for knows about me. And there's no record of it here in the text, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing somebody was thinking, well, Jesus, how do we do that? Because look at us, we're kind of a mess. You know, we've... We've been afraid to even go out, let alone go out and be witnesses. Humanly speaking, we don't have the guts. We don't have the ability to do what you're asking. And Jesus says, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So here's how you'll do it. The Holy Spirit will empower you. Here's my Reiki translation. He says, you're going to have some supernatural help. Now, let me tell you, as we work through further, we work further through this book, we're going to see, we're going to see the church just absolutely explode onto the, the historical scene and just expand. And we're going to hear we're going to hear about the love, the unity, the generosity, the courage. In other words, the actions of these early believers uh, who dramatically changed their community, their region, and their world. In fact, that's why in the second century A.D., a church leader named Irenaeus coined the title "The Book of Acts." You know, not the book of words, not the book of ideas, not the book of good intentions, but the book of acts, the book of action. But here's the thing. Everything that happens in this book, uh, everything that the church does, the remarkable impact it has on people and culture, all of that, all of it hinges on this one verse and its fulfillment. You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. Because realistically... Realistically, the events recorded by Luke, the rapid growth of the Christian church, could, could not have happened without the, the, the help, the enablement of God himself. Couldn't have done it. In fact, in chapter 4, we're going to see the Jewish authorities just totally perplexed on how, how all this was unfolding and how these disciples of Jesus, who they refer to as unschooled, ordinary men, how could these nobodies accomplish the things they were accomplishing? in the way that they were accomplishing it. It was perplexing to the leaders. In chapter 5, the most famous religious leader of the day, a guy named Gamaliel, he suggests to all the other leaders that they just leave the disciples alone. Leave them alone. Don't bother them. He says, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. They'll fizzle out. It'll fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God himself. And if history tells us anything, it tells us that no one could and no one did stop them. Because God was fully involved. Last week I mentioned this book to you uh, entitled The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. Big title. 
Uh, its author, a guy named Rodney Stark, is professor of social sciences at Baylor University and co-director uh, co, uh, of the Institute for Studies of Religion there. And the goal of the, his book is really to ex- examine how the Christian church grew so rapidly in such a short amount of time and explain it from a, a, a sociological perspective. Uh, However, interestingly enough, Stark opens the book by acknowledging the helpfulness but also the limitations of social science. He says, he writes, no sacrilege is entailed in the search to understand human actions in human terms. Moreover, I don't reduce the rise of Christianity to purely material or social factors. And this this guy's not a Christian, so translation. He's saying, look, human factors... Uh, alone cannot fully explain the explosive growth of the Christian church and its impact on human history. Human factors alone don't explain it. And I'm thinking, well, of course they don't. I mean, whether whether we're talking about the 21st century or whether we're talking about the, uh, the first century, the problems of our culture, the problems of our nation, the problems of our world, the problems of humanity cannot be solved through the efforts of man himself. It can't. It doesn't work. And yet so many believe the opposite. So many believe that man can rescue and himself and, and solve all of his problems. You know, just the other day, I heard uh, a U.S. State Department representative suggest that one way to curb terrorism and evil uh, is to ensure people have jobs and education. And look, I'm all for jobs and I'm all for education for everybody. But to think that those things will stop evil in its tracks is naively optimistic, to say the least. And yet, in, in, in defense of the person who said it, th- I mean, this, is, has been the, this has been the popular theory of Enlightenment philosophy for a long, long time. Many people buy into that. A lot of people in, in high places buy into it, um, that we can solve the problem if we just, we just work hard enough. Some of the most influential modernists of the past century believed this very thing. They believed in man's ability to save himself. Famous people, Beatrice Webb, H.G. Uh, Wells, Ernest Becker, uh, were all part of this group of, of modernists who, they were all about solving humanity's problems by, first of all, getting rid of religion, Christianity, superstition, and bringing a, a secular approach to society and to government, thinking that by doing so, the evils uh, uh, of crime, of poverty, violence, and war could and would be solved by the 21st century. Well, here we are. It hasn't happened. Ernest Becker, one of the most well-known uh, in the group, he was an American cultural anthropologist, Pulitzer Prize winner, and wrote two key books about this very thing. The first book he wrote was called The Structure of Evil. And in it, he proposed that the real problem, the real problem of war and poverty and crime and violence is that the privileged are keeping others down through oppressive social structures. Therefore, he said, social science applied to government will solve the problems and deal with evil. Does that sound familiar? Well, by the end of his life, the end of his career, he changed his mind completely. He did a complete turnaround. In his last book, titled Escape from Evil, he wrote this, My previous writings did not take sufficient account of truly vicious human behavior. This is a dilemma I've been caught in along with many others trying to keep alive the Enlightenment tradition. Obviously, it's an enormous problem to show that man is truly evil-causing. And yet to move beyond this to the possibilities of sane, renewing action, some kind of third alternative beyond bureaucratic science or despair is necessary. In other words, Becker was saying, 
He says, look, I was convinced. I was convinced that education, legislation, regulation would deal with the evil darkness of our world. I was convinced, but it doesn't. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. There's got to be another solution. Now, understand, there are always things we, we should do to improve our human situation. No question about it. But there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of the darkness. The failure of enlightenment philosophy, both in the past and in our present, rests in its futile belief that the solution to the problem of darkness and evil is man himself. And it's not. The solution is God. So I've gotten a a bit off track here, but the point is, even Jesus' disciples on their own could not have impacted the world to such a staggering degree as they did. They knew it, and certainly Jesus knew it. And so he says to them, look, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so what happened in and through the early Christian church was a direct result of God's supernatural involvement. But Jesus left the disciples with an additional resource to carry out his directive, which is revealed when he says this. He says, you will receive power. The you here is plural. In North Jersey, we'd say, you guys, hey, you guys, you guys, you guys are going to get power. If you're from the South, you might say, y'all going to get some power. You know, I don't, I don't know how exactly Southern people say it, but you know, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's different, I'm going to get a note for that one. That, uh, I changed my email address on that one. Um, you know what? Here's the point. <laughs> uh, he says, you, plural. In other words, they had each other. He's saying you have each other. You have a faith community in which every believer, man and woman, will be empowered by the same Spirit to love, to teach, to serve, to give, to support, to encourage and to be witnesses of Jesus and to the grace of God to their world. And we're going to talk a lot more about this idea of community as we work through the book. but, But notice what happens next. Luke reports that after Jesus said all this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then suddenly... These two guys dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This event down through the centuries has become known as the ascension, the ascension of Jesus. But basically, he leaves the disciples. That's what happens. And so the question some might ask is, well, why? Why does he he leave? Why does he have to leave? And I suppose there are a lot of of reasons that we could identify, but two two basic ones come to mind. First, by leaving his disciples, Jesus enables them to, to grow up, really. And they, they, they will still have access to him through the ministry of the Spirit, but he'll be less tangible. In times of trouble, uh, they, they'll rely on him by relying on the Spirit and on each other. The way forward is going to be a little less certain. They're going to be forced to solve problems on their own without always getting a, getting a definitive word uh, from Jesus. They're, they're still going to have their doubts. At times, they're going to un- uh, misunderstand what God wants them to do, what God is doing. They're going to struggle at times to get along. And if they, if they want to see the risen Christ, they're going to have to learn to see him in each other's eyes. You know, Jesus had been preparing them this for this for three years, modeling before them humility, servanthood, love, compassion, generosity, all these things. He's been preparing them. And now he strengthens them in those things by leaving them. And then the second reason Jesus leaves as the Apostle John explains in his letter to the church, was so that Jesus would go and stand before the cosmic court of God, if you will, as our advocate, our legal representative. And what does he do there? He speaks on our behalf. And that's how it works, right? In a courtroom, uh, that's the job of legal counsel. My defense attorney speaks for me. They know what to say. They can make a case in a way that I cannot. Uh, they understand the law, and they understand what the law demands, In fact, 
The Apostle John doesn't just call Jesus our advocate. He calls him our advocate, the righteous one. Not the, not the persuasive one, not the slick one, or even the, the, the merciful one. He says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's significant, and here's why. It's because sometimes, sometimes I think we view, we view Jesus as ascending into heaven and standing before God the Father, begging for clemency on our behalf. Do you know what I mean by that? We, we have this idea, this vision of Jesus being like, please, Father, please, 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 please. Ray is a complete knucklehead. He, you know, he, he is a messed up dude, man. He's, he's got so many issues. You know, he has sinned again. It's what he does. It's who he is. I'm begging you. I'm begging you, Father. Let him off the hook. Let him off the hook. Show mercy. Don't squash him like a bug. You know, maybe, here's an idea. Let's maybe put him on probation for a while. Let's put him on probation. Let's cut a deal. That's not how it is. John says Jesus is our advocate. In other words, he doesn't stand before the throne of God begging for mercy. He's not trying to persuasively convince God to be lenient, lenient toward me or toward any of us. He is righteous. He is righteous, and therefore he is pleading for justice. He demands justice. The law of God requires judgment of sin, with the penalty being death. But Jesus is a great lawyer with an open, shut case. Why? Because John says he's also the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's my Reiki summary. Our legal representative in heaven paid the penalty for us on earth. He lived the perfect life we could never live and willingly died the death we all deserve to die. He was sacrificed for us. He was punished in our place. Justice has been lovingly and graciously served. And now our advocate, Jesus the Righteous One, stands before the Father and demands justice, i.e. demands our freedom, which is granted. And see, that's why as Christians we can experience a relationship with God that's one of joy and peace and a deep sense of confidence because we're not just... We're not banking eternity on mercy. No, no, no. I mean, mercy's good. Justice is better, way better. And it's on our side. See, some people are under the, the false impression that God simply forgives sin. It's exact, that's not exactly the case. In Jesus, God does forgive our sin. But because, as John puts it, God is faithful and he is just, then justice is, is on our side. You follow me? In addition to that, sometimes we think, hey, man, this is, this is great. This is really good. You know, in Jesus, God has erased my record. He's cleaned my slate. And now, now I'm on probation. So, you know, I, gotta be, I better be really, 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 really good. Well, it's important we understand that Jesus, he puts us beyond probation. Divine justice has been served once for all. We are free forever. And so Jesus ascends to heaven to strengthen his disciples, to be our advocate before the Father. And then in order to lead the disciples with a sense of hope, uh, they're assured of his return. Two angelic beings materialize, even though, and even though the guys had uh, obviously seen a lot of miraculous things happen in their time with Jesus, I'm sure they weren't expecting this, so they're no doubt taken by surprise. And these, these beings show up with a message. What's the message? The message is basically that Jesus wasn't abandoning them, but was leaving them for an indeterminate amount of time with a, with a specific mission for them to accomplish. But he would eventually return. Here's the promise. They said, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And with that final word of assurance, we know from what Luke wrote at the end of his biography that the disciples worshiped God and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, why is all of this significant? Well, it's significant simply for this reason. What was true for the disciples 
was true for all the followers of Jesus and therefore remains true for us today. We in the Christian church have been given a life purpose, the mission of bringing the good news of Jesus and, and the grace of God to our world. And we, don't, we don't have to rely solely on human efforts and ingenuity to accomplish it. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us. We don't have to go it alone. We have each other, a believing community, and we can live by faith and confidence, not fear, but faith and confidence because of Jesus, our advocate in heaven, who has paid the penalty for our sin. And divine justice has been served, and we are free. We are set free. And therefore, no matter what, we have the promise of Christ's return in life in the kingdom of God forever. And, and so with all of that being true, just as the disciples return to their everyday lives with a sense of purpose, hope, and joy, may all of us do the same this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know from history, um, with no one questioning it, that the church's arrival on the historic scene changed things forever. Not only did it change a community, not only did it change a region of the, of, of the a continent, not only did it change an empire, I mean, it changed the world. It changed everything. Yet we recognize that this change could not have come about through the efforts of just average, everyday people. It couldn't happen as a human beings. We cannot... We cannot solve the problems of our world. We cannot have such an impact on things. And the same was true for for Peter and John and the rest. They're just average men, many of them unschooled. But it was because of your, your power working in and through them that amazing things happened. The growth of the church, a phenomenon that cannot be explained, uh, by human efforts alone. And yet we know that's what happens when we we come to faith in Jesus. The grace we experience changes things from the inside out as as your spirit begins to work in and through us. And I pray this morning that we as a church would see similar effects and impacts on our culture and world through our efforts, empowered by your spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.